0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker.
1: And I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes.
0: In today's episode, we want to introduce you to Nellie Bly, who is without doubt, one of the most astonishing people I've ever come across. And she's been dead for a hundred years.
1: Hold that thought. First things first, though, trapped history. That sounds really intriguing, but what does it actually mean?
0: Well, it's something that the great writer and social activist James Baldwin once said People are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. So
1: let me get that straight. People are trapped in history, yep. and history is trapped in them. Sure. Okay, that's interesting. Have you got any examples that will help bring that to life a bit?
0: First of all, I take that to mean that we're all prisoners of our past. Mm. We're trapped in history, refers to countries, nations, societies, those big histories.
1: Okay.
0: In Britain, where we're recording trapped history, I think we still define ourselves a lot through our experience of the Second World War, the Dunkirk mm. spirit, the We do. spirit. A yeah. you know, whole Absolutely. lot of spirit going on. Mm. And that idea of standing alone against the world, it gets co-opted by people who who want to use that past, who want to use those stories to tell a different story in a different age. I'm, I'm only going to say it once, Carla. <laughs> never pass my lips again. One word, Brexit. Oh,
1: let us never speak of it again. The B word is banned. <laughs> All right, I think I'm getting the gist of it now. And I suppose a similar thing is actually playing out in
0: Ukraine right now, isn't it?
1: Putin tapping into the history and the rhetoric from World War II, isn't yeah, it?
0: Absolutely, mm. couldn't agree more. The second part of James Baldwin's phrase, when he says, history is trapped in us, to me, that means that just as nations get stuck in their stories, so do we as individuals in in the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Mm. I suppose I think what he's saying, whether it's countries or whether it's people, is that those stories, those histories, they trap us. And they stop us, I mean, this is going to sound a bit hokey, they stop us being our better selves. His point being that these stories aren't always hugely helpful.
1: Mm. So why don't we park those really unhelpful stories Absolutely. and let's focus on the ones that, that really tell us something.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the, the new stories, the new people, the people who are hidden, forgotten, not even remembered in the first place.
1: Yeah, Trapped History will show you some of the greatest people you've never heard of. So this season, you'll be hearing about African and Jewish war heroes, about women who circle the world, about the greatest singer, the greatest filmmaker, and the greatest entrepreneur.
0: You'll also hear about the children who took on some of the most powerful men in America, and about the artists who look for the remarkable in the most unremarkable of places.
1: Okay. so today, who are we going to hear about today, Oswin? The
0: great Nellie Bly.
1: Okay. So convince me. What? Well, convince me that hearing about Nellie is a good use of my time. What's so special about
0: her? Okay, all right. Um, Fine, I hear you, Carla. Um, (laughs) So, Nellie Bly, she was born in 19th century America, but she is truly a 21st century woman. She invents new ways of seeing things and showing people what they are. She calls out... Injustice and barbarity in mental health care. Travelling on her own famously round the world in under 80 days. Okay. She reports from the brutal front line on the Eastern Front in the First World War. And to top it all, Nellie Bly was also a businesswoman who had the patent for the oil drum. The oil drum, the thing that oil comes in even today.
1: How on earth does she manage to do all of those things in just one lifetime? Yeah. And so when was this again? Uh,
0: the 1880s, the 1890s.
1: And when you think about it, there weren't really many career opportunities for women at that time, were there maybe you could be a teacher or a governess or a nurse
0: or really just be focused on your, your husband and kids, really. Yeah, and, and it is pretty rubbish. Mm. And from Nellie's point of view, it's a set of options that she rejects out of hand. She... Ah, she sends the dish back to the kitchen. (laughs) So you're interested, Carla? You're interested in Nellie? Yeah, I am, actually. Tell me more. The thing that makes Nellie's name is an astonishing piece of investigative reporting which ushers in a whole new journalism. It's 1887, and Nellie walks into the offices of one Joseph Pulitzer.
1: Oh, like the Pulitzer Prizes? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. At the time, though, Pulitzer was the Murdoch of his day, the king of the new mass market. It was, it was called yellow journalism, sensational, headline-grabbing stuff. Nellie convinces him that she can get into New York's Asylum for the Insane, that's what it was called, to expose the treatment of what were chillingly called inmates. As Nelly later
2: wrote, I thought I could assume insanity long enough to accomplish any mission entrusted to me. Could I pass a week in the insane ward at Blackwell's Island? I said I could, and I would, and I did.
1: Wow. Now that is method acting, if ever I heard it.
0: Sure. And and she started that method acting way before she got in. She checked into a boarding house. She acts up, frightens the other boarders silly, and is soon in the asylum. Wow. Once she was inside what she called a human rat trap, Nellie said it was easy to get in, but impossible to get out. Nellie simply observes and records the cruelty, the beatings, the forced druggings of patients all around her.
2: They pounced upon her and slapped her face and knocked her head in a lively fashion. This made the poor creature cry the more, and so they choked her. Yes, actually choked her. Then they dragged her out to the closet, and I heard her terrified cries hush into smothered ones. After several hours' absence, she returned to the sitting room, and I plainly saw the marks of their fingers on her throat for the entire day. Oh, that is so horrific.
1: Yeah,
0: and when Nellie gets out, her resulting expose, titled Ten Days in a Madhouse, does some good. It brings a grand jury to the asylum and an injection of nearly a million dollars to turn it around. That's a million dollars in the 1880s. I don't know what that is now, but...
1: Mm. A huge amount, and that is incredible. Talk about really making a difference.
0: Absolutely, and it, it's shocking, it's harrowing. The experiences she records are dehumanising, mm. but the pieces which Nellie writes, they really mark the beginning of something new,
1: Yeah,
0: defining and creating a new way of seeing the world. It's no longer good enough for someone to just say, oh, this is what happened. Uh, they have to immerse themselves in the story, become part of the story, so that the reader, the listener, the viewer can feel that human connection.
1: Yeah, and what she did all those years ago really paved the way for today's investigative reporting. Yeah, yeah totally. And anyone can be an investigative reporter with citizen reporting and, and social media these days, aren't they?
0: Yeah, and I mean the thing about Nellie, of course, is that she was one of the first, one of the world's first true investigative reporters, and, and that's why she's so important.
1: OK, so that's why she matters. But can we just rewind a bit? How did she get to that place?
0: OK, well, firstly, spoiler alert, Nellie isn't her real name. OK. She's actually born Elizabeth Cochrane in 1864 in Pittsburgh. She's got 14 brothers and sisters. Her dad's a self-made man but dies when Nellie is six years old and the family falls on hard times. She drops out of school after just one term because her mum can't afford it, they make ends meet by renting out rooms in a boarding house. It's it's funny, though, Carla, what you were saying about women's life chances in the 19th century, basically, that there aren't any, because Mm. that's exactly how Nellie gets her break. She reads a piece in the Pittsburgh Dispatch, headlined... What Girls Are Good For,
2: hmm.
0: which basically said exactly what you said, Carla. It's about having kids and looking after the home. Mm-hmm. Nellie is incensed. She writes a reply under the byline, Lonely Orphan Girl. The editor's impressed, seeks her out, hires her on the spot, and gives her the pen name of Nellie Bly. She's 20 years old. And what kind of things did she write? I mean, we, we think that we're in the middle of the culture wars today, but it's nothing compared to the world Nellie lived in. Her first piece argued for better jobs for women, her second for the reform of divorce laws, and she then takes it upon herself to write searing indictments of the conditions in Pittsburgh's factories for women workers. And the key to a culture war is it's not just about exposing discrimination and injustice, the stuff that Nellie's doing, mm. it's what's going on on the other side. It's the rebuttals, the attacks, the trolling. And Nelly is taken off the job because her editor becomes terrified of what the factory owners might do to him.
1: Wow guess it's a bit like cancel culture today isn't it really you can just be erased totally and nelly
0: is cancelled to rub salt into the wounds she gets relegated to what were called the women's pages uh, (laughs) which was having to write about fashion and flower arranging high society gossip i mean it was a real up yours
1: compared to what she was doing before absolutely i can imagine them saying oh you want to write about women oh here you go write this
0: yeah and you know you can imagine how well that went down in nelly's house even at this early stage, she is very clear about what she wants.
2: To do something no girl has done before.
0: I don't know if such a thing exists as a as a freelance foreign correspondent. It sounds like the sort of job that I'd love to make up as <laughs> SWAT around the world. But that I mean that's essentially what Nellie becomes. She spends six months. Soaking in ordinary life in Mexico. Again, Nelly wants to turn things on
2: their head. The Mexicans are certainly misrepresented, most wrongfully so. They are not lazy, but just the opposite. Okay, and hang on, when was this?
0: 1885. This is okay. a couple of years before 10 Days in a Madhouse. So, just to recap, in less than a year, Nelly starts as a journalist. Writes important pieces about women's rights, calls out factory owners, and then goes to live in and write about Mexico. And she only stops doing that because she really pisses off the Mexican president. This is starting to be a bit of a theme with her, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, you know, we'll come on to that and we will see it played out again and again. Speak truth to power. I think that would be the, the way that Nelly would formulate what she was doing. In fact, she did say something pretty close to that.
2: I have never written a word that did not come from my heart. I never shall. She
1: was really ahead of the curve, wasn't she? Quite cutting edge, to be honest. You know, a reporter, an anthropologist, a travel writer.
0: Yeah, I I, I get the feeling that Nellie, right from an early age, knew what it was that she wanted to do she wanted mm. to live this story to inhabit it whether that is in the madhouse whether that is in mexico and it's really difficult you know thinking of what we're doing here on trapped history it's very difficult to think of anyone else who so deliberately and purposefully decides not to be trapped by history
1: mm. yeah yeah
0: I mean, mm-hmm. you you just mentioned Carla, anthropology, and uh, travel writer, and I mean, just like this new form of journalism, which Nelly was at the forefront of, those disciplines of travel writing of anthropology, they were also new at this time. New ways of looking at the world. Four years before Nelly went to Mexico in 1881, someone called Edward Burnett Tyler published a book called "Wait for It." anthropology, uh, which was one of the first attempts to set out what studying people and societies was all about. As for travel writing, again, this was also new in a form we'd recognize today. Obviously, people have been writing about traveling around the world since the ancient times. Mm. But it was Robert Louis Stevenson who wrote Travels with a Donkey in the Cevennes" in 1879. That was the beginning of Travel writing, which we see in our newspapers and see in social media today, about yeah. somebody's personal experience and how lovely it is, and all of that <laughs> stuff, um, and that was then just a few years before Nelly was doing this. So, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's reporting, it's anthropology, it's travel writing. Nelly is at the front of all of these new ways of trying to see the world, trying to describe the world. And that's even before she sets foot in the New York Asylum for the Insane.
1: And we think we're really modern now, don't we, with all the tech that we have. But Nellie was actually groundbreaking at a time when it was really difficult to be doing something new, especially as a woman.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, the world is shrinking and everything's getting faster. That's what we think about today. That's what we think it's like now in the 2020s. But this is the 1880s. You've got... Thomas Edison's light bulb, oh, yeah these things sound pretty basic but <laughs> yeah. uh, Alexander Graham Bell's telephone these are just a few years old and these are the equivalent of the internet this is the iPhone these are the inventions which are going to change everything everywhere forever
1: around the same time the transcontinental railroads were launched weren't they and ocean yeah. liners yeah. and Mr Pulitzer's newspapers that you mentioned earlier Oswin so, really, you've got people, things and ideas all moving so much faster and so much further than they ever have done previously. And Nellie was right at the heart of it all, wasn't she?
0: It's funny we've just been talking about travel because that's the next part of Nelly's story. And to help us tell it and understand it, I'm delighted to welcome our special guest today. You might already have clocked her voice a few times historian and writer Rosemary Brown, who in her magnificent book, Following Nellie Bly, did just that. Lovely to meet you, Rosemary.
2: I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you, Oswin.
0: Now, Rosemary, you're a journalist by trade. Uh, You work with Save the Children, UNICEF, Rainforest Foundation, a whole range of international charities shining a spotlight on injustice. You've worked in homelessness shelters with refugees in Greece and London. You've climbed Kilimanjaro. You're a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. So, I mean, with all that in mind, what on earth could possibly have attracted you to Nellie Bly?
2: Well, thank you. What a lovely introduction. What attracted me to Nellie Bly was her courage, her determination, and especially her humanitarianism. Mm. Uh, She was a real humanitarian. Um, Through her newspaper articles, she had campaigns, for vulnerable people, uh, particularly women and children. And I just admired that so much. And when I discovered her, I couldn't believe I never knew about her and that most people didn't. And that's what drove me to my goal to get her back on the map. I wanted her to be out there as a role model for everybody, not just women and, and children, but for men, everybody, because she always said nothing is impossible and she lived by that.
0: This trip is very different from Nellie's other investigative journalism. And when I say trip, um, Jules Verne had published Around the World in 80 Days in 1872. And Nellie simply sought to to do just that and to do it quicker than that, to do it better than that. But I think it's more than just a a dream of hers. Nellie is working hand in glove here with Joseph Pulitzer. Is it too much to say there's cold, hard business here? He needs to be selling newspapers and that's one of the reasons for doing this stunt.
2: Absolutely. Nellie's goal in achieving this, it was almost a dream for her, but she had the goal of wanting to show that the world was a smaller place, that it actually could be traversed faster than the fictional 80 days of Phileas Fogg. She also wanted to show that a woman could do it and that women didn't always have to travel with 12 trunks. So that was important for her. But for Joseph Pulitzer, sure, it was about increasing circulation. He wanted to increase sales and circulations. And he did it. It worked. At least three hundred thousand new subscribers came on board wow. during Nellie's trip and afterwards. He also employed some good gimmicks. He had a Nellie Bly guessing game, and people could readers could send in how long they thought it would take her in days, hours, and minutes. And whoever won got a trip around the not a trip around the world, a trip to Europe. <laughs> and so that was a good incentive. And it worked. It was a sales ploy. It was marketing. It was publicity.
0: I love something she, she said when the newspaper manager said, no one but a man can do it. Yes, exactly. Nellie says, very well, start the man, and I'll start the same day for some other newspaper and beat him.
2: And they knew she would.
0: So this is 1889. Yes. Taking us back to 1889, I mean, part of Nellie's own preparations for this is she didn't just take her entire wardrobe with her. She didn't just wear whatever she wanted to wear. I think that she had as good an idea about how to sell herself on this trip as Pulitzer had about selling newspapers. Can you tell us a bit about what Nellie did and and how she got herself ready, how she prepared for this journey.
2: I truly believe that Nellie Bly chose her outfit based on practicality. That she chose um, an outfit she could wear for 72 days, and she definitely chose her bag, which I brought to show you, when And that is, that really is sort small, of a small... 16 by 7 inches.
0: Sort of a Gladstone bag, is that yes, what we would call it? we would
2: call it a Gladstone bag.
0: And she pretty much has, in that Tiny bag, one set of clothes. She doesn't have a, a huge wardrobe or anything like that.
2: No, they, there's no clothes in there. There's night dresses and the tennis jacket for some reason. Um, but mostly, uh, again, practical things like her pens and her notebook, and um, and she had handkerchiefs and she had special. Um, adornments for her outfit that you could take off and wash. But I will say she also was very stylish. And it's probably not a coincidence that she went to the most famous dressmaker in New York City to get her, her outfit made. And she told him, I need this for to last 75 days. And I need it in 24 hours. Now that's pretty impractical, really impractical. But he did it. William Gormley did it, and he had previously made inaugural gowns for president's wives.
0: I mean, she looks sort of, a, in the photos I've seen, like a, a female Sherlock Holmes. Yes, she loved her deerstalker hat. Deerstalker, yeah.
2: She loved her deerstalker hat, and she said that made her feel very English.
0: The quick rundown of her journey is, it's 14th of November, 1889, she leaves New York. And uh, again, another thing I was astonished by was the d- length of the travel. You know, it's, it's an eight-day Atlantic crossing. Yes. And it arrives Southampton, did you say? arrives Southampton, goes across Britain, goes down through Europe. There's another two-week sea voyage through the Med, Suez Canal, the Gulf, Indian Ocean. And then it is sort of this rattles off Sri Lanka, Singapore, yeah. Hong Kong, Japan, which she fell in love with Japan, it seems. So did I. (laughs) (laughs) This other two weeks across the Pacific, rattles across America on a train, and finally arrives back in New Jersey, 25th of January, 1890, 72 days, 20,000 miles, and that's it.
2: Boy, can we quote you on that? (laughs) That was great.
0: (laughs) So you decided a few years ago to follow in Nellie's footsteps.
2: So this, for me, was a challenge, but it was an adventure, and I'm quite up for adventures as well. And sometimes I thought, what are you doing? Um, and some people said to me, what are you doing? And, uh, but I was I was just as driven as Nellie Bly. I was going to do this.
0: I think that you tried to replicate as much as possible. You, You had one bag.
2: I had one small bag, slightly bigger than hers, but it was a rucksack, a rolling rucksack, which would have been nice for her, but... And also, I didn't have to wear the same outfit because of new <laughs> technology they've got. I had quite a nice little range of clothing that I just mixed and matched. Uh, skirts, pants, and T-shirts, and good old bandanas will change every outfit. So for me, it was really easy to have a decent wardrobe, even a swimsuit and a towel, because I love to swim. Um, uh, compared to her, I mean, I didn't ha- I didn't really have to stuff things in into it. It, yeah. There was enough room because of the lightness of the fabrics, and some of the fabrics were even mosquito-proof and sunproof. So I was protected from oh, mosquitoes.
0: You make it sound so easy.
2: It is easy, <laughs> and it's easy to travel lightly. And this is something Nellie Bly taught me, and I think that we could all learn. Just a tip for your listeners: if you just have, um, a, like, a, a palette of three or four colors, you can mix and match, and it makes one outfit into twelve.
0: You heard it here first. We've, got, we've now got fashion advice on trapped history. <laughs> was there a time or a place when you really felt close to Nelly? You felt as if she was there with you. You, you understood what she was going through in her 70 days journey.
2: Inside the belly of the great Buddha of Kamakura, Often, when you're traveling, you're in a train station, even you're in a church or whatever. She could have been anywhere, but I knew I was exactly where she was. Nelly had been inside this Buddha in Kamakura, Japan, and she'd been able to climb up through his body and look out through his eyes into the surrounding countryside. Hang on, wait a
0: second, wait a second, wait. She's been in the belly of a Buddha?
2: And all the way up to his eyes.
0: How does that. I didn't know you could do
2: that. Oh, he's a metal Buddha. He's a five-story high metal... Neither did I. I mean, I knew that Nellie did it, but can you imagine my delight when I found out that I could at least go as far as his belly? (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) really. So um, I went to the great Buddha of Kamakura to see what she had seen, not knowing that I would actually be able to go inside. And it was fascinating because there's no doubt I was with her there. There's, it's not big, It's hu- you know, it's not huge. So we were in the same place, just different times.
0: And this is literally a statue, a huge statue huge of Buddha, which statue- people can go into.
2: That's yes. brilliant. Oh, I know. I couldn't believe it. I was so excited. <laughs> I was so excited. And I knew that we were in exactly the same location. The second place takes a little bit longer to explain, but it was in Hong Kong. Nellie Bly arrived in Hong Kong on the tail of a monsoon. When I arrived in Hong Kong, there was a typhoon on the way. Okay. So um, I did what I, I did everything in a day, and then I was planning to go to China And going to China for me was very difficult because I've worked on human rights in China and it was hard for me to get the visa in the first place. But I had this visa. It was slowly but surely running out. I didn't have time to stay in uh, Hong Kong to wait for the typhoon to finish. So I thought, oh, I'm really stuck. What am I going to do? And I said, well, what would Nellie Bly do? And I walked straight (laughs) into that typhoon Everything was shut. No airports, no stock exchange, no nothing. All shops, Hong Kong just shut down. And I thought, well, perhaps the trains are running. i got to give it a go because Nellie has given me this advice. Would you believe I got to the train station and (laughs) the trains were running? And so I was thrilled. I got on my train. I had a reserve seat and nobody else was on the train except for one person, and would you believe my reservation was right next to his. <laughs> so here I am, on we're on an empty train, I'm two people sitting together. Well, actually, it was very good, because we could chat, and we congratulated ourselves for beating the typhoon. But we were chatting along, and I was happy, and we even ordered breakfast to celebrate.
0: And was this a Chinese man or a European? He was from Malaysia.
2: He was oh, a flight okay. attendant from Malaysia, and he was coming going into China as well. And uh, so we were chatting, and um, suddenly I looked up where you keep the luggage, and I saw Nellie Bly's bag. He was carrying a Gladstone bag, a replica of Nellie Bly's bag because they're qu- they were quite trendy, I guess, at the, at the <laughs> time because he was a very wow. trendy young man. And I looked up and I saw this bag and he said, what's wrong? I must have turned white. <laughs> I was shaking and I, he said, what's wrong? I said, well, you're not going to believe this, but I actually showed him a photograph of the bag and he couldn't, he, he was, oh, okay, now I know. Mm.
0: Last thing, Rosemary, I'd like to really just sort of get your, your, your take on as someone who I think it's fair to say you have spent time with Nellie. You have spent time being Nellie and spent time following Nellie and sometimes leading Nellie. I mean, what do, you, what do you make of her? Is, is, is Nellie a nice person? Is Nellie someone you'd want to spend time with?
2: Uh, Nellie is someone I'd like to spend time with, but I think I'd be quite overawed by her she did what she needed to do to get things done. And she stopped at nothing to achieve what she wanted to achieve. I admire that.
0: Mm. I mean, I, I I was struck by a couple of things uh, you had in your book that she said. I mean, it feels she, she's very, she's a hard taskmaster on on herself, sort of a punishing superego. She, she, she wrote, I would rather, this is in terms of winning the race as it were i would rather go in dead and successful than alive and behind time she talked about wasting precious hours lying outside the gates of hope
2: that's quite hard it's very hard she had a very difficult childhood so that fueled her and that probably brought about the hardness
0: there was something else also that uh, that you've got in her book when she writes and again this this To me, it sort of filled me with immense sadness, really, about Nellie. And she said that she wanted to drift out on dreams that bring what life has failed to give, soothing pictures of the imagination that blot out for a moment the stern disappointment of reality. For me, I mean, what had life failed to give her? What what made her reality such a disappointment?
2: Nellie's goals and her job were the most important things in her life. She put them first, even before relationships. Mm. She had strong messages she wanted to get out there. And she opened the door to journalism for women. I mean, there were not women in in newsrooms when she started out. She did. And so I'm grateful to her for that.
0: Mm. It seems a very different way of doing things compared to how things have been done before and Nellie seems to be
2: instrumental she, in making that happen. She was at happen. the forefront and I would I give her credit for pioneering investigative journalism. The kind of journalism that to this day changes the world and changes life and I see her as the pioneer of that.
0: And I suppose the one thing that all journalism, good journalism can do is it can give hope. It, it, it shines a spotlight on despair, but it can give hope. And there's a wonderful passage, and it would be wonderful if you were able to read
2: it. They can talk of the companionship of men, the splendor of the sun, the softness of moonlight, the beauty of music, but give me a willow chair on a quiet deck, the world with its worries and noise and prejudice lost in the distance the glare of the sun, the cold light of the moon blotted out by the dense blackness of night. Let me rest, wrought gently by the rolling sea, in a nest of velvety darkness, my only light, the soft twinkling of the myriads of stars in the quiet sky above, my music, the round of the kissing waters, cooling the brain and easing the pulse, my companionship, dreaming my own dreams, Give me that, and I have happiness in its perfection.
0: Absolutely beautiful. And dreaming my own dreams. dreams. Dreaming my own dreams. That's the important thing for her. One of the things we want to do here at Trapped History is not just to feature an important and hidden story with each episode but also to challenge ourselves, to challenge you listening to this and to challenge our guests. And so we're asking each of our guest experts to bring along someone, to nominate someone to the Trapped History Hall of Fame. Someone who we haven't heard of, but really should have. So, Rosemary, uh, insert drum roll, Who would you like to nominate for the Trapped History Hall of Fame?
2: The same day that Nellie set out circling the world from the East, another journalist left that night from New York City traveling from the West. Her name was Elizabeth Bisland, and she was sent by the Cosmopolitan, which is today's current Cosmo magazine. Oh, right. Nellie didn't even know that Elizabeth Bisland was doing the trip the opposite way in an attempt to win the race. She didn't know that till she arrived in Hong Kong.
0: So this wasn't this wasn't a setup. It wasn't going. It wasn't meant to be billed as a race. It was just Nellie was going to try and beat Jules Verne. And suddenly there is a race. Elizabeth
2: Bisland came on the came on the scene. Nellie found out about her in Hong Kong, and in Hong Kong at that stage, Elizabeth Bisland was in the lead. Nellie was blown away, but of course she didn't show it. She rustled up all of her courage and and, and just said... I am not racing against anybody else. I am only racing against time. I intend to do this race in 75 days. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Nelly, in the end, zoomed ahead and she she did the race in 72 days but equally almost equally as exciting is that elizabeth bisland completed the race in 76 days which is a huge achievement she also traveled alone but she had a trunk i think uh anyway (laughs) the it's the same old story the winner takes all so even though Nellie bly was forgotten Shortly after she made that huge accomplishment of circling the world in 72 days, Elizabeth Bisland never even surfaced.
0: And what, did... hap- what happened to her afterwards? Do we know anything about the rest of her life?
2: Yes. Elizabeth uh, continued to write. She was a journalist. She, In the end, she wrote four books, and one of them is a book about her trip around the world. But this is a very interesting point. She and Nellie Bly never met. But... The two journalists have several things in common. They both married at a later age, around 30, which in those days would have been very late. Neither one of them had children. And ironically, they are both buried in the same cemetery within walking distance of each other. Wow. Elizabeth has a beautiful grave with her husband. It's beautiful. It's got lilies and it's lovely. And not so far away from both of them is Joseph Pulitzer.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs)
2: So I said it's like a The Rogues Gallery. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I wanted to nominate Elizabeth. She didn't win the race, but still, she achieved an amazing accomplishment of traveling the world in 76 days. Well, 76 and a half.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we will definitely accept Elizabeth into the Hall of Fame. Rosemary, it has been absolutely delightful. (laughs) Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. It has been a complete and total pleasure. Yay,
0: Elizabeth. <laughs> so we've talked about the journalism, yeah. but what about her other projects? Uh, remember the oil drums. There oh. are always the oil drums. <laughs> of course. So Nellie is a, a world-changing journalist, mm-hmm. a world-spanning adventurer, but she's not finished yet. She marries an elderly industrialist in the 1890s. He's twice her age. And is soon running the Ironclad Manufacturing Company where she holds the patent for the oil drum we still see today. And once more, I mean, you know, we've got to remember where and when we are. And yet again, Nellie is right at the front of a changing modern world where Mm. it pivots from coal to oil in order to heat light and power everything around us. Um, Just look at the numbers. In 1899, America produces 57 million barrels of oil. Just seven years later and this is at the time when Nellie's own factory is knocking out 1,000 oil drums a day, when she's in charge of that factory after her husband's kicked the bucket. Just seven years later, that number has soared to 127 million barrels of oil, over twice as much. I mean, you hadn't seen such a leap in production since the 1870s, which was when the oil industry was in its infancy. Wow. It seems like there is no end to her talent. It does seem like that, Carla, but unfortunately there is um, because Nellie was a rather rubbish businesswoman. Oh, Uh, Yeah, she got fleeced by a fraudster and the company folded.
1: Oh, that's such a shame. But what about journalism? I feel like that was really her first true love. Did she go back to writing at any point?
0: I think she wrote quite a few books and novels, but as you say, it's, it's the immediacy of journalism which mm. really gets her. And so she does go back to it. She okay. is 50, heading to Europe for a holiday when the First World War breaks out. And Nellie spends the next five years in Europe reporting from the Eastern Front. She even gets herself arrested as a British spy by the Austrians. <laughs>
1: Wow, never a dull moment for our (laughs) Nellie. So how does her story end?
0: I know I said earlier that Nellie is trying not to be trapped by history, but sometimes you just can't escape its grip. Mm. When Nellie dies at the relatively young age of 57, with no children, remember, she was one of 15, she's buried in an unmarked grave in the Bronx because there isn't enough money to pay for the funeral. Mm. The New York Evening Journal, which she'd worked for during the First World War, said in an obituary that she was, I quote, considered to be the best reporter in America. But Nellie Bly dies pretty much penniless, not so far removed from how she'd begun her journey. Mm. That's
1: really sad, after everything that she'd achieved as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, she's not completely forgotten. There are statues to her. She's in the National Women's Hall of Fame in New York. There have been plays and films and TV. But I think it—I think it would be fair to say that Nellie was not taken care of very much, like the women in the asylum.
1: Yeah. It felt like she had phases where she was completely true to herself and, and her real love, which was, was journalism mm. and the investigative reporting. Mm. But somehow her marriage just doesn't seem to fit into that puzzle for me. Yeah. It seems like she slowed down there. I agree. It kind of completely consumed her 30s and then the oil drum business took over her 40s. But for me, it's really telling that she went back to journalism in later life. It's like she had a, an itch that she still needed to scratch. She had more to give.
0: Yeah, and and, and it is frustrating. I, I know I said earlier that Nellie sent the gender roll dish back to the kitchen, (laughs) but, you know, the the waiter keeps bringing it out, says there's nothing wrong with it, must be something wrong with your taste buds, and eventually Mm. you fold and accept the plate that's put in front of you. Mm. And it feels that Nellie might have done just that in the 1890s. No-one's that strong. Something's got to give.
1: Mm. But she's an investigative reporter, yep. a travel writer, yep. a record breaker, an entrepreneur, the list goes on, a war reporter. And in all of these roles, Nelly was really having to fight for her space in a man's world, mm. always having to show that she was head and shoulders above all those men around her. It must have just been so tiring. <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and, and I think, really, when all's said and done, you've you've got to go back those five glorious years in the 1880s when Nellie literally bestrode the world. (laughs) Hope you've enjoyed Trapped History today. Tune in for our next episode when we'll be meeting a chancer, a thief, a scrounger and a bona fide war hero. And that is all in one person.
1: All in one person. Wow, I'm looking forward to you convincing me of that one. Bring it on.
0: You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been MK Lee. Catch up with more Trapped History on Instagram and visit trappedhistory.com for transcripts, extended interviews and more. And remember what James Baldwin said, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. See you soon.